Yet, how is it in many places? Nobody prays much about the matter. There are no meetings for crying to God for a blessing. The minister never encourages the people to come and tell him about the work of grace in their souls. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he has his reward. He gets what he asks for. He receives what he expected. His master gives him his penny, but nothing else. The command is, Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. And here we sit, with closed lips, waiting for the blessing. Open your mouth, brother, with full expectation, a firm belief, and according to your faith, so shall it be unto you. That is the essential point. You must believe in God and his gospel if you are to be a winner of souls. Some other things may be omitted, but this matter of faith must never be. It is true that God does not always measure his mercy by our unbelief, for he has to think of other people as well as of us. But looking at the matter in a common sense way, it does seem that the most likely instrument to do the Lord's work is the man who expects that God will use him and who goes forth to labor in the strength of that conviction. When success comes, he is not surprised, for he is looking for it. He sowed living seed, and he expected to reap a harvest from it. He cast his bread upon the waters, and he means to search and watch till he finds it again. Once more, if a man is to succeed in his ministry and win many souls, he must be characterized by thorough earnestness. Do we not know some men who preach in such a lifeless manner that it is highly improbable that anybody will ever be affected by what they say? I was present when a good man asked the Lord to bless to the conversion of sinners the sermon that he was about to deliver. I do not wish to limit omnipotence, but I do not believe that God could bless to any sinner the sermon that was then preached unless he had made the hearer misunderstand what the minister said. It was one of those bright poker sermons, as I call them. You know that there are pokers that are kept in drawing rooms to be looked at, but never used. If you ever tried to poke the fire with them, would not you catch it from the lady of the house? These sermons are just like those pokers, polished up, bright, and cold. They seem as if they might have some relation to the people in the fixed stars. They certainly have no connection with anyone in this world. What good could come of such discourses, no one can tell. But I feel sure there is not power enough in them to kill a cockroach or a spider. Certainly there is no power in them to bring a dead soul to life. There are some sermons of which it is quite true that the more you think of them, the less you think of them. And if any poor sinner goes to hear them with the hope of getting saved, you can only say that the minister is more likely to stand in the way of his getting to heaven than to point him to the right road. You may depend upon it that you may make men understand the truth if you really want to do so. But if you are not in earnest, it is not likely that they will be. If a man were to knock at my door in the middle of the night, and when I put my head out of the window to see what was the matter, he should say, in a very quiet, unconcerned way, There is a fire in the back part of your house. I should have very little thought of any fire, 
and should feel inclined to empty a jug of water over him. If I am walking along and a man comes up to me and says in a cheerful tone of voice, Good afternoon, sir. Do you know that I am starving? I have not tasted food for ever so long. Indeed, I have not. I should reply, My good fellow, you seem to take it very easy. I do not believe you want for much, or you would not be so unconcerned about it. Some men seem to preach in this fashion. My dear friends, this is Sunday, so here I am. I have been spending my time in my study all the week, and now I hope that you will listen to what I have to say to you. I do not know that there is anything in it that particularly concerns you. It might have some connection with the man in the moon. But I understand that some of you are in danger of going to a certain place, which I do not wish to mention. Only I hear that it is not a nice place for even a temporary residence. I have especially to preach to you that Jesus Christ did something or other, which, in some way or other, has something to do with salvation, and if you mind what you do, and so on, it is possible that you will, and so on, and so on. That is, in a nutshell, the full report of many a discourse. There is nothing in that kind of talk that can do anybody any good, and after the man has kept on in that style for three quarters of an hour, he closes by saying, Now, it is time to go home, and he hopes that the deacons will give him a couple of guineas for his services. Now, brethren, that sort of thing will not do. We do not come into the world to waste our own time and other people's in that fashion. I hope we were born for something better than to be mere chips in the porridge like the man I have described. Only fancy God sending a man into the world to try to win souls, and that is the style of his mind and the whole spirit of his life. There are some ministers who are constantly being knocked up with doing nothing. They preach two sermons of a sort on Sunday, and they say the effort almost wears their life out and they go and give little pastoral visitations which consist in drinking a cup of tea and talking small gossip. But there is no vehement agony for souls, no woe, woe on their hearts and lips, no perfect consecration, no zeal in God's service. Well, if the Lord sweeps them away, if he cuts them down as cumberers of the ground, it will not be a matter for surprise. The Lord Jesus Christ wept over Jerusalem, and you will have to weep over sinners if they are to be saved through you. Dear brethren, do be earnest. Put your whole soul into the work, or else give it up. Another qualification that is essential to soul winning is great simplicity of heart. I do not know whether I can thoroughly explain what I mean by that, but I will try to make it clear by contrasting it with something else. You know some men who are too wise to be just simple believers. They know such a lot that they do not believe anything that is plain and simple. Their souls have been fed so daintily that they cannot live on anything but Chinese bird's nests in such luxuries. There is no milk that ever came fresh from a cow that is good enough for them. They are far too superfine to drink such a beverage as that. Everything they have must be incomparable. 
Now God does not bless these exquisite celestial dainties, these spiritual aristocrats. No, no. As soon as you see them, you feel ready to say, they may do well enough as lords so-and-so's servants, but they are not the men to do God's work. He is not likely to employ such grand gentlemen as they are. When they select a text, they never explain its true meaning, but they go round about to find out something that the Holy Ghost never intended to convey by it. And when they get hold of one of their precious new thoughts, oh dear, what a fuss they make over it. Here is a man who has found a stale herring. What a treat. It is so odoriferous. Now we shall hear of this stale herring for the next six months, when somebody else will find another one. What a shout they set up. Glory, glory, glory. Here is a new thought. A new book comes out about it, and all these great men go sniffing round it to prove what deep thinkers and what wonderful men they are. God does not bless that kind of wisdom. By simplicity of heart, I mean that a man evidently goes into the ministry for the glory of God and the winning of souls and nothing else. There are some men who would like to win souls and glorify God if it could be done with due regard to their own interests. They would be delighted, oh yes, certainly, very pleased indeed, to extend the kingdom of Christ if the kingdom of Christ would give full play to their amazing powers. They would go in for soul winning if it would induce people to take the horses out of their carriage and drag them in triumph to the street. They must be somebody. They must be known. They must be talked about. They must hear people say, What a splendid man that is. Of course, they give God the glory after they have sucked the juice out of it, but they must have the orange themselves first. Well, if you know, there is that sort of spirit even among ministers and God cannot endure it. He is not going to have a man's leavings. He will have all the glory or none at all. If a man seeks to serve himself, to get honor to himself, instead of seeking to serve God and honor him alone, the Lord Jehovah will not use that man. A man is to be used by God must just believe that what he is going to do is for the glory of God and he must work for no other motive. When outsiders go to hear some preachers, all that they remember is that they were capital actors. But here is a very different kind of man. After they have heard him preach, they do not think about how he looked or how he spoke, but about the solemn truths he uttered. Another man keeps rolling out what he has to tell in such a fashion that those who listen to him say to one another, do you not see that he lives by his preaching? He preaches for his living. I would rather hear it said, that man said something in his sermon that made many of the people think less of him. He uttered most distasteful statements. He did nothing but drive at us with the word of the Lord all the while that he was preaching. His one aim was to bring us to repentance and faith in Christ. That is the kind of man whom the Lord delights to bless. I like to see men, like some before me here, to whom I have said, Here you are, earning a good salary, and likely to raise 
to a position of influence in the world. If you give up your business and come into the college, you will very likely be a poor Baptist minister all your life. And they have looked up and said, I had sooner starve and win souls than spend my life in any other calling. Most of you are that kind of men. I believe you all are. There must never be an eye to the glory of God and the fat of sheep. It must never be God's glory and your own honor and esteem among men. It will not do. No, not even if you preach to please God and Jemima. It must be God's glory alone, nothing less and nothing else, not even Jemima. As the limpet to the rock, so is she to the minister. But it will not do for him even to think of pleasing her. With true simplicity of heart, he must seek to please God, whether men and women are pleased or not. Lastly, there must be a complete surrender of yourself to God, in this sense, that from this time you wish to think, not of your own thoughts, but God's thoughts and that you determine to preach not anything of your own invention but God's word and further that you resolve not even to give out that truth in your own way but in God's way suppose you read your sermons which is not very likely you desire not to write anything but what shall be entirely according to the Lord's mind when you get hold of a fine big word you ask yourself whether it is likely to be a spiritual blessing to your people and if you think it would not you leave it out then there is that grand bit of poetry that you could not understand you felt that you could not omit that but when you asked whether it was likely to be instructive to the rank and file of your people you were obliged to reject it you must stick those gems that you found on a literary dust heap into the coronet of your discourse if you want to show the people how industrious you have been. But if you desire to leave yourself entirely in God's hands, it is probable that you will be led to make some very simple statement, some trifling remark, something with which everybody in the congregation is familiar. If you feel moved to put that into the sermon, put it in by all means, even if you have to leave out the big words in the poetry in the gems, for it may be that the Lord will bless that simple statement of the gospel to some poor sinner who is seeking the Savior. If you yield yourself thus unreservedly to the mind and will of God, by and by when you get out into the ministry, you will sometimes be impelled to use a strange expression or to offer an odd prayer, which at the time may have a queer look even to yourself but it will be all explained to you afterwards when someone comes to tell you that he never understood the truth until you put it that day in such an unusual way. You will be more likely to feel this influence if you are thoroughly prepared to study in prayer for your work in the pulpit. And I urge you always to make all due preparation and even to write out in full what you think you are to say but not to go and deliver it by heart, like a Paul parrot repeating what it has been taught. For if you do that, you will certainly not be leaving yourself to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I have no doubt you will sometimes feel that there is a passage that you must put in 
a fine piece by one of the British poets, or a choice extract from some classic author. I do not suppose you would like it to be known, but you did read it to a college friend. Of course you did not ask him to praise it, because you felt sure that he could not help doing so. There was one particular piece in it that you have very seldom heard equaled. You are sure that Mr. Punchon or Dr. Packer could not have done better than that. You are quite certain that when the people hear that sermon, they will be obliged to feel that there is something in it. It may be, however, that the Lord will consider that it is too good to be blessed. There is too much in it. It is like the host of men that were with Gideon. They were too many for the Lord. He could not give the Midianites into their hands, lest they should vaunt themselves against him, saying, Our own might hath gotten us the victory. When twenty-two thousand of them had been sent away, the Lord said to Gideon, The people are yet too many, and all of them had to be sent home except the three hundred men that lapped. And then the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, get thee down into the host, for I have delivered it into thine hand. So the Lord says about some of your sermons, I cannot do any good with them, they are too big. There is that one with the fourteen subdivisions. Leave seven of them out, and then perhaps the Lord will bless it. Some day it may happen, just when you are in the middle of your discourse, that a thought will come across your mind, and you will say to yourself, Now if I utter this, that old deacon will make it hot for me. And there is a gentleman just come in who keeps a school. He is a critic, and he will be sure not to be pleased if I say this. And besides, there is here a remnant according to the election of grace, and the hyper up in the gallery will give me one of those heavenly looks that are so full of meaning. Now, brother, feel ready to say just anything that God gives you to say, irrespective of all the consequences, and utterly regardless of what the hypers or the lopers or anybody else will think or do. One of the principal qualifications of a great artist's brush must be its yielding itself up to him so that he can do what he likes with it. A harpist will love to play on one particular harp because he knows the instrument and the instrument almost appears to know him. So when God puts his hand upon the very strings of your being and every power within you seems to respond to the movements of his hand, you are an instrument that he can use. It is not easy to keep in that condition to be in such a sensitive state that you receive the impression that the Holy Spirit desires to convey and are influenced by him at once. If there is a great ship out at sea and there comes a tiny ripple on the waters, it is not moved by it in the least. Here comes a moderate wave. The vessel does not feel it. The great eastern sits still upon the bosom of the deep. But just look over the bulwarks See those corks down there? If only a fly drops into the water, they feel the motion and dance upon the tiny wave. May you be as mobile beneath the power of God as the cork is on the surface of the sea. I am sure this self-surrender is one of the essential qualifications for a preacher who is to be a soul winner. There is something that must be said if you are to be the means of saving that man in the corner. Woe unto you if you are not ready to say it. Woe unto you if you are afraid to say it. 
Woe unto you if you are ashamed to say it. Woe unto you if you do not dare to say it, lest somebody up in the gallery should say that you were too earnest, too enthusiastic, too zealous. These seven things, I think, are the qualifications Godward which would strike the mind of any of you if you try to put yourself into the position of the Most High and considered what you would wish to have in those whom you employed in the winning of souls. May God give us all these qualifications for Christ's sake. Amen. Chapter 3, page 22 Qualifications for Soul Winning Manwood You remember, brethren, that on the last occasion when I gave you a lecture on soul winning, I spoke of the qualifications God would that would fit a man to be a soul winner. And I tried to describe to you the kind of man that the Lord was most likely to use in the winning of souls. This afternoon I propose to take as my subject the characteristics of a soul winner, manwood. I might almost mention the very same points that I enumerated before as being those which will best tell manwood, for I do think that those qualities that commend themselves to the notice of God as being most adapted to the end he desires are also likely to be approved by the object acted upon, that is, the soul of man. There have been many men in the world who have not been at all adapted for this work. And first, let me say that an ignoramus is not likely to be much of a soul winner. A man who only knows that he is a sinner and that Christ is a Savior may be very useful to others in the same condition as himself, and it is his duty to do the best he can with what little knowledge he possesses. But on the whole, I should not expect such a man to be very largely used in the service of God. If he had enjoyed a wider and deeper experience of the things of God, if he had been in the highest sense a learned man, because taught of God, he could have used his knowledge for the good of others. But being to a great extent ignorant of the things of God himself, I do not see how he can make them known to other people. Truly there must be some light in that candle which is to lighten men's darkness, and there must be some information in that man who is to be a teacher of his fellows. The man who is almost or altogether ignorant, whatever will he has to do good, must be left out of the race of great soul winners. He is disqualified from even entering the lists, and therefore let us all ask, brethren, that we may be well instructed in the truth of God, that we may be able to teach others also. Granted that you are not of the ignorant class to which I have been referring, but supposing that you are well instructed in the best of all wisdom, what are the qualities that you must have towards men if you are to win them for the Lord? I should say there must be about us in evident sincerity, not only sincerity, but such sincerity that it shall be manifest at once to anyone who honestly looks for it. It must be quite clear to your hearers that you have a firm belief in the truth that you are preaching. Otherwise, you will never make them believe them. Unless they are convinced beyond all question that you do believe these truths yourself, there will be no efficacy and no force in your preaching. No one must suspect you of proclaiming to others what you do not fully believe in yourself. 
If it should ever be so, your work will be of no effect. All who listen to you are to be conscious that you are exercising one of the noblest crafts and performing one of the most sacred functions that ever fell to the lot of man. If you have only a feeble appreciation of the gospel you profess to deliver, it is impossible for those who hear your proclamation of it to be greatly influenced by it. I heard it asked the other day of a certain minister, Did he preach a good sermon? No, not in the slightest degree. Was it not a good sermon? Again came the first answer. What he said was very good. What do you mean? Why did you not profit by the sermon if what the preacher said was very good? This was the explanation that the listener gave. I did not profit by the discourse because I did not believe in the man who delivered it. He was simply an actor performing a part. I did not believe that he felt what he preached, nor that he cared whether we felt or believed it or not. Where such a state of things as this exists, the hearers cannot be expected to profit by the sermon, no matter what the preacher may say. They may try to fancy that the truths he utters are precious. They may resolve that they will feed upon the provision whosoever may set the dish before them. But it is no use. They cannot do it. They cannot separate the heartless speaker from the message he delivers so carelessly. As soon as a man lets his work become a matter of mere form or routine, it sinks into the performance in which the preacher is simply an actor. He is only acting a part as he might in a play at the theater. In not speaking from his inmost soul as a man sent from God, I do beseech you, brethren, speak from your hearts, or else do not speak at all. If you can be silent, be silent. But if you must speak for God, be thoroughly sincere about it. It would be better for you to go back to business and weigh butter or sell reels of cotton or do anything rather than pretend to be ministers of the gospel unless God has called you to the work. I believe that the most damnable thing a man can do is to preach the gospel merely as an actor and to turn the worship of God into a kind of theoretical performance. Such a caricature is more worthy of the devil than of God. Divine truth is far too precious to be made the subject of such mockery. You may depend upon it that when the people once suspect that you are insincere, they will never listen to you except with disgust and that they will not be at all likely to believe your message if you give them cause to think that you do not believe it yourselves. I hope I am not wrong in supposing that all of us are thoroughly sincere in our master's service. So I will go on to what seems to be to me the next qualification man would for soul winning, and that is evident earnestness. The command to the man who would be a true servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. If a man is to be a soul winner, there must be in him intensity of emotion as well as sincerity of heart. You may preach the most solemn warnings and the most dreadful threatenings in such an indifferent or careless way that no one will be in the least affected by them. And you may repeat the most affectionate exhortations in such a half-hearted manner that no one will be moved either to love or fear. 
I believe, brethren, that for soul winning there is more in this matter of earnestness than in almost anything else. I have seen and heard some who were very poor preachers who yet brought many souls to the Savior through the earnestness which they delivered their message. There is positively nothing in their sermons until the provision merchant used them to wrap around his butter. Yet those feeble sermons brought many to Christ. It was not what the preachers said, so much as how they said it, that carried conviction to the hearts of their hearers. The simplest truth was so driven home by the intensity of the utterance and emotion of the man from whom it came that it told with surprising effect. If any gentleman here would present me with a cannonball, say one weighing fifty or a hundred pounds, and let me roll it across the room, and another would entrust me with a rifle ball and a rifle out of which I could fire it, I would know which would be the most effective of the two. Let no man despise the little bullet, for very often that is the one that kills the sin and kills the sinner too. So, brethren, it is not the bigness of the words you utter. It is the force with which you deliver them that decides what is to come of the utterance. I have heard of a ship that was fired at by the cannon in a fort. No impression was made upon it until the general in command gave the order for the balls to be made red hot, and then the vessel was sent to the bottom of the sea in three minutes. That is what you must do with your sermons. Make them red hot. Never mind if men you say you are too enthusiastic or even too fanatical. Give them red-hot shot. There is nothing else half as good for the purpose you have in view. We do not go out snowballing on Sundays. We go fireballing. We ought to hurl grenades into the enemy's ranks. What earnestness our theme deserves. We have to tell of an earnest Savior, an earnest heaven, and an earnest hell. How earnest we ought to be when we remember that our work we have to deal with souls that are immortal, with sin that is eternal in its effect, with pardon that is infinite, and with terrors and joys that are to last forever and ever. A man who is not in earnest when he has such a theme as this, can he possess a heart at all? Could one be discovered even with a microscope? If he were dissected, probably all that could be found would be a pebble, a heart of stone, or some other substance equally incapable of emotion. I trust that when God gave us hearts of flesh for ourselves, he gave us hearts that could feel for other people also. These things being taken for granted, I should say next that it is necessary for a man who is to be a soul winner that he should have an evident love to his hearers. I cannot imagine a man being a winner of souls when he spends most of his time in abusing his congregation, in talking as if he hated the very sight of them. Such men seem happy only when they are emptying vials of wrath over those who have the unhappiness of listening to them. I heard of a brother preaching from the text, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves. He began his discourse thus, I do not say that this man came to the place where we are, but I do know another man who did come to this place and fell among thieves. You can easily guess 
what would be the result of such vitriol throwing. I know of one who preached from the passage, and Aaron held his peace, and one who heard him said that the difference between him and Aaron was that Aaron held his peace, and the preacher did not. But on the contrary, he raved at the people with all his might. You must have a real desire for the good of the people if you are to have much influence over them. Why, even dogs and cats love the people who love them, and human beings are much the same as these dumb animals. People very soon get to know when a cold man gets into the pulpit, one of those who seem to have been carved out of a block of marble. There have been one or two of our brethren of that kind, and they have never succeeded anywhere. When I have asked the cause of their failure, in each case the reply has been, He is a good man, a very good man. He preaches well, very well, but still we do not get on with him. I have asked, Why do you not like him? The reply has been, Nobody ever did like him. Is he quarrelsome? Oh, dear no. I wish he would make a row. I try to find out what the drawback is, for I am very anxious to know, and at last someone says, Well, sir, I do not think he has any heart, or at least he does not preach and act as if he had any. It is very sad when the failure of any ministry is caused by want of heart. You ought to have a great big heart, like the harbor at Portsmouth or Plymouth, so that all the people in your congregation could come and cast anchor in it and feel that they were under the lee of a great rock. Do you not notice that men succeed in the ministry and win souls for Christ just in proportion as they are men with large hearts? Think, for instance, of Dr. Brock. There was a mass of a man, one who had bowels of compassion. And what is the good of a minister who has not? I do not hold up the accumulation of flesh as an object worthy of your attainment. But I do say that you must have big hearts if you are to win men to Jesus. You must be great hearts if you are to lead many pilgrims to the celestial city. I have seen some very lean men who said that they were perfectly holy, and I could almost believe that they could not sin, for they were like old bits of leather. There did not appear to be anything in them that was capable of sinning. I met one of these perfect brethren once, and he was just like a piece of seaweed. There was no humanity in him. I like to see a trace of humanity somewhere or other about a man, and people in general like it too. They get on better with a man who has some human nature in him. Human nature in some aspects is an awful thing, but when the Lord Jesus Christ took it and joined his own divine nature to it, he made a grand thing of it, and human nature is a noble thing when it is united to the Lord Jesus Christ. Those men who keep themselves to themselves like hermits and live a supposed sanctified life of self-absorption are not likely to have any influence in the world or to do good to their fellow creatures. You must love the people and mix with them if you are to be of service to them. There are some ministers who really are much better men than others, yet they do not accomplish so much good as those who are more human, those who go and sit down 
with the people and make themselves as much as possible at home with them. You know, brethren, that it is possible for you to appear to be just a wee bit too good so that people will feel that you are altogether transcendental beings and fitter to preach to angels in cherubim and seraphim than to the fallen sons of Adam. Just be men among men, keeping yourselves clear of all their faults and vices, but mingling with them in perfect love and sympathy, and feeling that you would do anything in your power to bring them to Christ, so that you might even say with the Apostle Paul, Though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant to all, that I might gain the more. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law, as under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. To them that are without the law, as without the law, being not without the law to God, but under the law of Christ, that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. The next qualification men would for soul winning is evident unselfishness. A man ceases to bring men to Christ as soon as he becomes known as a selfish man. Selfishness seems to be ingrained in some people. You see it at the table at home, in the house of God everywhere. When such individuals come to deal with a church and congregation, their selfishness soon manifests itself. They mean to get all they can, although in the Baptist ministry they do not often get much. I hope each of you, brethren, will be willing to say, Well, let me have but food and raiment, and I will therewith be content. If you try to put the thought of money altogether away from you, the money will often come back to you doubled. But if you seek to grab and grasp all, you will very likely find that it will not come to you at all. Those who are selfish in the matter of salary will be the same in everything else. They will not want their people to know anybody who can preach better than themselves, and they cannot bear to hear of any good work going on anywhere except in their own chapel. If there is a revival in another place and souls are being saved, they say with a sneer, Oh yes, there are many converts, but what are they? Where will they be in a few months' time? They think far more of their own gain of one new member per year than of their neighbor's hundred at one time. If your people see that kind of selfishness in you, you will soon lose power over them. If you make up your own mind that you will be a great man, whoever has to be thrust on one side, you will go to the cats as sure as you are alive. What are you, my dear brother, that people should all bow down and worship you, and think that in all the world there is none beside you? I tell you what it is. The less you think of yourself, the more people will think of you. And the more you think of yourself, the less will people think of you. If any of you have any trace of selfishness about you, pray get rid of it at once, or you will never be fit instruments for the winning of souls for the Lord Jesus Christ. Then I am sure that another thing that is wanted in a soul winner is holiness of character. It is no use talking about the higher life on Sundays and then living the lower life on the weekdays. 
a Christian minister must be very careful not only to be innocent of actual wrongdoing, but not to be a cause of offense to the weak ones of the flock. All things are lawful, but all things are not expedient. We ought never to do anything that we judge to be wrong, but we ought also to be willing to abstain from things which might not be wrong in themselves, but which might be an occasion of stumbling to others. When people see that we not only preach about holiness, but that we ourselves are holy men, they will be drawn toward holy things by our character as well as by our preaching. I think also that if we are to be soul winners, there must be about us a seriousness of manner. Some brethren are serious by nature. There was a gentleman in a railway carriage some time ago who overheard a conversation between two of the passengers. One of them said, Well now, I think the Church of Rome has great power and is likely to succeed with the people because of the evident holiness of her ministers. There is, for instance, Cardinal Blank. He is just like a skeleton. Through his long fasting and prayers, he has reduced himself almost to skin and bone. Whenever I hear him speak, I feel at once the force of holiness of the man. Now look at Spurgeon. He eats and drinks like an ordinary mortal. I would not give a pin to hear him preach. His friend heard him very patiently, and then said quite quietly, Did it ever strike you that the cardinal's appearance was to be accounted for by the fact of his liver being out of order? I do not think it is grace that makes him as lean as he is. I believe it is his liver. So there are some brethren who are naturally of a melancholy disposition. They are always very serious. But in them it is not a sign of grace. It is only an indication that their livers are out of order. They never laugh. They think it would be wicked to do so. But they go about the world, increasing the misery of humankind, which is dreadful enough without the addition of their unnecessary portion. Such people evidently imagine that they are predestined to pour buckets of cold water upon all human mirth and joy. So, dear brethren, if any of you are very serious, you must not always attribute it to grace, for it may be all owing to the state of your liver. To most of us, however, are far more inclined to that laughter which doeth good like medicine, and we shall need all our cheerfulness if we are to comfort and lift up those who are cast down. But we shall never bring many souls to Christ if we are full of that levity which characterizes some men. People will say it is all a joke. Just hear how those young fellows jest about religion. It is one thing to listen to them when they are in the pulpit, but it is quite another matter to listen to them when they are sitting around the supper table. I have heard of a man who was dying, and he sent for the minister to come to see him. When the minister came in, the dying man said to him, Do you remember a young man walking with you one evening some years ago when you were going out to preach? He said he did not. I recollect it very well, replied the other. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. 
our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.